0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Genesis chapter one. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. We lit the hope candle to begin our service together. And we're beginning a new series simply entitled Working in the Waiting. If you are familiar, unfamiliar, excuse me, if you're unfamiliar with the season of Advent. Basically, it's a season that's celebrated over the course of the four Sundays that precede Christmas Day. And those those four weeks, they're meant to represent the time period that takes place between your Old and New Testament in your Bible. So between your Old and New Testament, you may simply turn a page that's labeled the New Testament, but that page represents 400 years, often 400 years of silence. So to represent those 400 years... We often call it, excuse me, the 400 years of silence. And to, re- to represent those 400 years, we take four weeks. Four weeks to wait. Much like the people of God during those 400 years waited for God to fulfill his promise to send a Messiah, we take four weeks to remember that waiting and to wait alongside of them, to wait for the coming of Christmas Day when we celebrate the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ. That's what advent means. It's a Latin word that simply means Coming, And so we take this season to look back on God's faithfulness. He promised to send Christ the first time, and he did. But this season isn't just about looking back, no. We look back on God's faithfulness, and that looking back is meant to cause us to look forward in faith. God promised to send Christ the first time, and He did. And that stirs up faith in us to look forward at His promise that He will send Christ again. Christ will have a second advent. And so we look back at the faithfulness of God and we say He promised to send Christ, and He did. And we look forward, He has promised to send Christ again, and He will. This season reminds us that we are still the waiting people of God. For we await Christ's second Advent. O come, O come, Emmanuel is still our song. And we are still a people who long to one day sing fully and finally, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Advent as a season, whether you're looking backwards or whether you're looking forwards, Advent as a season is about God's faithfulness to his waiting people. It's a season about God's faithfulness to his waiting people. In shades, we live as a waiting people. What's that supposed to look like? Like living now as his people in the waiting, what does that look like? Because if we're honest, time spent waiting often feels just like wasted time. Whether you're waiting in a line or whether you're waiting on your children eternally, Like it just feels like wasted time. With time spent waiting feels like nothing important is happening. You're waiting for something important to to happen. If we look back at the first advent of Christ, doesn't that kind of reinforce the message that, that times of waiting aren't really that important? I mean, the 400 years between your Old and New Testament are called the 400 years of silence. Nothing about those years is recorded in your Bible. Like, doesn't doesn't that make it feel like, well, nothing important was happening. It's just a waiting period. And and isn't our waiting for the second advent of Christ just like that? Just waiting time. Wasted time. Not even important enough to be recorded in the pages of, of Scripture. Aren't we just in a waiting period? I think... Shades, I think that we can often feel this way. Like what we do with our lives right now doesn't even matter. It has no importance or significance in the kingdom of God. But, Shades, that is a lie. Your life matters. That one's one of mine. It's just saying amen. Your life matters. For God has not created you to waste away in the waiting. No, he has called you to work in the waiting. There's a lot more to what our life looks like in this waiting period, but this is what we're going to focus in on this Advent season. God's call on our lives to be working in the waiting. He has given you, God has given you a calling in the here and now. He has given you a vocation. That word, vocation. That word is going to be incredibly important throughout our Advent series. Vocation, unfortunately, it's a word that often gets tossed around as if it's a synonym for occupation. Occupation, vocation, job, whatever. It's not a synonym for occupation. It's a theological word. It started within the church, within Christendom. Vocation, you can even hear the the, the root word, vocal, can't you? It, it, the word itself actually comes from the Latin, vocatio, which simply means call, or summon. A vocation is a calling. It's something you've received. It's something that you've been called to, brought to. A vocation is a, is a calling, something God has called you to work at. I, throughout this series, I'm going to use the terms vocation and work interchangeably, but not interchangeably as vocation and occupation. Those are the same thing. That's how it's normally used. Like I just said a minute ago, when we hear vocation, we hear, we think 40 hour work week for which I draw a paycheck. I just do this thing either maybe to derive importance for my own life, or I do it in order just to pay bills and put food on the table. But that's, that's vocation. Now I want to pull that word vocation away from that. And I want to pull it over here into theological land And define it theologically for you. A vocation is whatever God has prepared and placed you to do. And I want to pull the word work over there too. Your work, Christian, whether you're paid for it or not, whether it's 40 hours a week or not, whatever it is, your work, your vocation is what God has prepared you and placed you to do. We're going to flesh that out a little bit more but a vocation, it's a calling, something God has called you to work at. Give a significant portion of your waking life to. For many of us, that is a paid job. You work a paid job, that's your vocation, at least currently, or one of your vocations. You may have more than one. You're a parent, you got more than one. Your spouse, you got more than one. You're single, you got more than one. There are lots of vocations we can, we can talk about, but if you work a paid job, there's your vocation. But for others, Maybe you're at a phase of life where being a student, it's your vocation, it's your calling. Maybe your vocation is being a stay-at-home parent, but whatever it is, you, Christian, right now in the waiting, you have a vocation. You have a calling, a reason to be working in the waiting. And as soon as I say that, like I've had this conversation individually enough to know the objections that are coming as soon as I say, you have a calling, you have a vocation, I know there are immediately many of you that are thinking, not me, Jonathan. I don't, have, I don't have a calling. I don't have a vocation. And I hear people say that all the time, and usually they're saying that for one of two reasons. One, they equate vocation with occupation maybe they don't have a paid job, so they think, I don't have a vocation. I don't have a calling. Or two, second reason they may say that, they don't have a calling, is because they they have a narrow, non-biblical idea of what it means to be called. I think this is massive amongst evangelical churches. We have a narrow, non-biblical idea of what it means to be called. Our non-biblical idea of what it means to be called looks something like Moses in the burning bush. Like, what it means to be called is that I have to have some kind of miraculous, holy ground, take my sandals off kind of moment where a bush is on fire but not being burned up and it speaks to me and says, this is your vocation. This is what you're supposed to do with your your life. And a lot of people say, Jonathan, I don't. I don't have that i've never had that kind of experience i don't know what i'm supposed to do with my life i don't have a vocation i don't have a a calling but shades once again a vocation is whatever god has prepared you and positioned you to do whatever he's prepared you and positioned you to do in other words christian wherever you find yourself there is your vocation there is your calling Are you a stay-at-home parent? There's your vocation. Are you a student? There's your vocation. Are, Are you employed? Even if you don't like where you're employed, it is your current vocation, your current calling. Wherever you find yourself, paid or not, God has called you there. Even without a burning bush, He's called you by His providential positioning. We just finished the study of the book of Esther. And did we not, throughout the book of Esther, see God giving Esther and Mordecai a vocation? Not even necessarily one they asked for or wanted. And he didn't give them a vocation by calling to them from the sky, did he? No, through his normal, everyday, sovereign providence, he positioned them and prepared them for what he was calling them to do. They never got a burning bush moment or a booming voice from from the sky, but they were no less called. And the same is true for you. God has called you, parent, student, employee, employer, or retired, even if you're retired. Man, do you have an incredible vocation if you're retired. God has dumped tons of missional time into your lap in which you can disciple those who are around you. Retirement is not an eternal vacation for Christians. It's an eternal vocation. You have a calling. Awesome. Now what what are you supposed to be doing with it? Great, Jonathan, where I am? God's positioned me there. He's called me there, called me to work in the waiting, work in the vocation. What what does that look like? That's the question we're going to spend the rest of this series answering it. And the way we are going to answer it is by doing a miniature biblical theology of work or biblical theology of vocation. All right, doing a biblical theology is a little bit different than what we normally do on Sunday mornings at Shade. Y'all are used to us just kind of walking verse by verse through a book, expositionally expounding the scriptures, applying them to our lives. A biblical theology is when you take a particular theme, you take something, and you trace what scripture teaches about it from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. So as we move through creation, as we move through the fall, what do we learn about work about vocation? As we bring it through the lens of Christ and his redemption, what do we learn about our work and our vocation? And as we look to the future, to his second advent, when he comes again in the new creation, what does that teach us about work and our vocation? So that is what we're going to do over the next four weeks. And for the rest of this morning, we're just going to look at creation and fall. This morning is about laying a foundation, okay? Good stuff's coming next. This is good, too. It's the Bible. It's all good. We're laying a foundation this morning, okay, for what working and the waiting is supposed to look like. Let's do it by seeing two things. First, the purpose of work in creation, and second, the problem of work after the fall. So, first, the purpose of work in creation. Let's start there. Work is actually a part of God's good creation. Most people, that surprises them. Most of us naturally assume that work is a result of the fall. It's part of the bad stuff in life. It's it's not the picture we get from Genesis 1 and 2. Look at Genesis 1 and start off in the very first verse of the book. Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the original worker. I know it says he created, and that is a unique Hebrew verb right there that only applies to God. His work is different from our work, but this is also called his work throughout various other places in Scripture. We're going to see it already again in Genesis chapter 2. God's the original worker. The book opens with him working, creating. He forms, he fills, he makes. And it's all good. God not only works, but he rests. We see this in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. How does God rest? He doesn't get tired. He doesn't need a siesta. He doesn't need a nap. He doesn't need a day off. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross, brilliant. He, uh, He helpfully points out that the concept of rest here and Sabbath rest talked about throughout the creation narrative is not so much a ceasing from work as it is a celebration of the work that has been done. A celebration of what has been accomplished. This is a celebration of God's creation. As God has been creating, he's been having many celebrations along the way, at the end of each day stepping back and saying, "This is good, this is good, celebrating that which He has made." And here at the completion, Of his creation, he celebrates that it is all very good. All of creation is good. Why? Because it does what it was created to do. Namely, it points to God's goodness, God's greatness, God's beauty. It points to his glory. That's what everything was made to do. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The stars proclaim his handiwork. Everything was made to show that God is good, beautiful, great, glorious. This is why we travel long distances to see works of nature, to see their beauty, their goodness, their grandness. Is a small, thimble full reflection of the glory of, of the God who created it all. So God works and he rests. All of this is a foundation for understanding our own purpose in working. Because, look at verse 26 of Genesis 1. Genesis 1:26 1, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God, the worker, creates us to be like him. There's a lot tied up in what the image of God means, and a lot of it's debated, but at the very least, it means this. We're meant to image Him. An image is a small representation of a much larger reality. We, we are meant in some way to image forth God and who He is, and He is a worker. And so I believe that what we're going to see here in the text is that we are meant to image forth in our own working the glory, the goodness, the greatness, the beauty of God. Just look at the rest of verse 26. Why are we being created in the image of God? The rest of verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God is the creator He's the ruler over all, and yet he's made us in his image as his representatives and called us, designed us to participate in his work. Is that not what he's doing right here? He's the creator, he rules over all, and he gives rule to us. Have dominion over all of creation. We are given this vocation of ruling over creation in the way in a way that shows who god is and what he's like we're workers because god is a worker this is echoed all throughout the books of the law and we just go to somewhere like the 10 commandments exodus chapter 20 verses 8 through 11 say that we're to observe the sabbath day and keep it holy six days we're to labor but on the sabbath we're not we why for god labored for six days and rested on the seventh. In other words, you're a worker and a rester because God is. And you are made to image him. Our work is designed to point to him. God said, steward this world. Spread throughout it. Just look down at verse 28. That's what he says. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Take my image, who I am, spread it everywhere. Ancient kings would set up images of themselves at the borders of their land to show this is the land that I rule. God creates an image of himself and puts it on every place on the planet. This is where I rule. This is what we're supposed to do. We're, we're designed to steward this world, spread throughout it, do all of it in such a way that we are a small image of, of him. When people see the way that you work, they're to see a picture of the way that God works. When people see the way that you rest, rest is we already said it's a, it's, a, it's a celebration of God and who He is and His goodness and His greatness. What is that? That's worship. This is what we do on our day of rest, is it not? We gather together. This is rest, people. We gather together and we worship. The way we work is to point to the type of worker he is. The way we rest points to the type of rest that God gives us. In all of this, in all of this, what I want us to see is the twofold purpose of work in creation. Told you I wanted us to see the purpose of work in creation? I think what we've seen are two things. I'll point them out specifically. Our work is meant to be worship, and it's meant to be witness. Our work is meant to be worship. And it's meant to be witnessed. Do you see this and what we've covered? Do you you see that our work is meant to be worship? It is not worship pointing to God, and His greatness and His goodness. And is it not glorifying Him and saying, you're great, you're good. Is that not what we do when we gather and we sing and we preach and we pray? And this is what our work is meant to do. We're designed to work in a way that on a small scale points to the large scale goodness, greatness, and beauty of God. Our work is meant to glorify him. The purpose of work is worship. That becomes even more obvious in Genesis chapter 2. If you flip over to Genesis chapter 2, where we have God as the original employer, hiring his employee, if you will, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, he gives man a specific job. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him, It's wherever God has positioned you, right? Prepared you, placed you. God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, avad, and keep it, shamar. To work and to keep. I tell you those Hebrew terms, avad and shamar, because they're used all throughout the books of the law, primarily to refer to the work of the Levites in the tabernacle. They were to work and to keep. These are terms of worship serving. Adam was placed in this garden sanctuary of God as a priest to work and to keep it as worship. His work was meant to be worship. And so is ours purpose of our work is worship. But not only that, do you see how our work is also meant to be witness? I told you it has a twofold purpose. Our work is meant to be witness because it's done before the world. We talked about this. We image forth who God is and what he's like To the world, we've been created in his image, told to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with his image, point the world to his goodness, his greatness, and his beauty, his His glory. Our, Our work is worship, and because it is worship, it's also witness to the world. Christian, this is your vocation. Worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and that includes with your work. Worship. And love your neighbor as yourself. Show them the God you love and worship. Witness. Make disciples. Introduce the people of the world to the God of this world. Love God. Love neighbor make disciples. Great commandment. Great commission. This is your vocation. Worship and witness. And this is your vocation no matter what your occupation is. Like no matter if you're an employee or employer, no matter if you're a stay-at-home parent, student, unless your occupation is illegal or immoral. Like you're a hitman or something. Like like, unless your occupation is illegal or immoral, the purpose for which it was designed is worship and witness. Shades, don't buy into the lie that your specific vocation doesn't matter. Like, don't think, oh, that sounds great, Jonathan. But I'm just a teacher. I just work on an assembly line in a, in a factory. I'm just a stay at home parent. I'm, I'm just in advertising. I'm just a sales clerk. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. You're just a creation of the living God with potential to display his glory in your work, no matter what it is. Adam was just a gardener. David was just a shepherd. Peter was just a fisherman. Jesus was just a carpenter. The sinless Son of God spent 30 years sweeping up sawdust. What does that tell us about the value that God places on work? Your work matters not because of what you do, but because of who you do it for. That's how Greg Gilbert describes this. I stole that from him completely. That's how he describes this in a very helpful book called The Gospel at Work. Your work matters, not because of what you do, but because of who you do it for. In other words, what you do doesn't define you. Who you do it for does. What you do doesn't define you. Who you do it for It's just like Charles was talking about in the video earlier, right? Living out of our identity as who we are as a child of God. We do what we do for the glory of God. What you do doesn't define you. Who you do it for does. Your work matters not because of what you do, but who you do it for. Your work for God and his glory is done before a watching world. Your work is worship and it is witness and it matters. Right now in the waiting, it matters. Your work is a witness to the Christ we are waiting for. Your working and the waiting matters. So, that leads to the question, why doesn't it feel that way? It is great to talk about, theorize about, theologize about. But if our work matters as worship and witness, why doesn't it feel that way? If work's a part of God's good creation... Meant to be worshiped and witnessed. Why don't I experience it like that? Work seems to be nothing but painful and frustrating. This is where we need to see the problem of work after the fall. So we've seen the purpose of work in creation. Second thing we need to see this morning the problem of work after the fall. Flip over to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, just to summarize for you, we see our first parents rebel against God by wanting to take his place. This is the very heart of what sin is. Sin is the desire to replace God with something normally with ourselves. I want to be God. I want to be in charge. I want to be king over my own life. And human sin has infected and affected everything, including our work. Sin, what we're going to see in Genesis 3 is that sin broke work's purpose. We've seen what its purpose is worship and witness. Sin broke that. And work that was meant to be worship and witness became painful and frustrating. This is what often happens when you break something's purpose. Like it brings pain or it brings frustration. The, the first time my, uh, my daughter, Talitha, who's five, the first time that she saw figure skating on TV, which was uh, the last Winter Olympics, she was mesmerized and immediately began to mimic what she saw. And it was cute, right? I mean, she like spun and danced around the living room on our white rug. Why do we have a giant white rug in our living room with five children? Because we're insane, And it was all great and cute until she decided to use a pencil as a prop. I don't know like if it was supposed to be like a, a wand or a ribbon twirly thing, whatever. But she's dancing around with it. Point up. And why didn't I say anything? Because I'm a horrible parent. And of course, you know what happened next. Her triple sow cow did not go so well. And, uh, yeah, this is, this is way after we had cleaned it up. It was way worse than this. I mean, the bathroom looked like a murder scene. It was, yeah. She fell, and the pencil point put a hole in her face right below her lower lip. Using the pencil for something it was never designed for brought much Pain. She broke the pencil's purpose. And as a result, it broke her face. In the fall, Adam and Eve broke the very purpose of their God given work, and it brought pain. The purpose of their vocation was to point to God, His greatness. His goodness, His beauty, and their rebellion, their sin, was to make everything about their greatness, their goodness, their beauty. They broke. Do you see how that works? They broke the purpose of their work. And Genesis 3.17 reveals to us the painful result. Look at it. To Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The purpose of work in creation was to point to the glory of God. Adam and Eve decided to work for their own glory, something their work was never designed for. And like a pencil being used as a dancing prop, it brought pain. It also brought frustration. When you break something's purpose, it often not only brings pain, but it brings frustration. So this past Friday, we decided to take my children, all five of them, to get a Christmas tree because we're good parents. And this year, we weren't going we to go to like the Home Depot this year. No, we're going to do this right. We drove Way out to this Christmas tree farm to like actually cut one down. Now, I don't know if you recall what the weather was like on Friday, but it was not optimal tree chopping conditions. It rained ever so slightly. And when you have a family of seven, it's rare that you ever actually carry enough umbrellas for everybody. But no worries. My wife is like, we should just turn around. We should totally go to the Home Depot. I'm like, no. We're already almost here. We're making a memory. They'll never forget this. My mom said that all the time growing up. And what we learned was when she said we're making a memory, it meant something's about to go horribly wrong. And you will never forget it. So I'm like, no worries. We got this. I know we don't have enough umbrellas, but we have a blanket in the back of the van. And I'll carry Asher, and I'll just use the blanket. Surely that'll be adequate rain cover for Asher and I. (laughs) As you can tell, we felt very differently about this experience. (laughs) Just in case you're wondering, our tree is from the Home Depot. But, as you can tell from the look on my face, using a blanket for something it was never designed for brought just a little bit of frustration. The same thing happened to our work in the fall. We broke its purpose. So it brings frustration. Look at verse 18. God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Adam, you're going to work the ground, and the ground is going to fight you every step of the way, and eventually it's going to beat you. You're going to sweat until the day you die and become a part of the ground that you work. And all of your work and even you yourself will be reduced to dust. Sweaty, frustrating work that in the end seems futile. What's the point? It's all reduced to dust. Nobody even remembers it. This is the reality in which we all live and work. This is why work is painful and frustrating. Because we approach work sinfully, like we see in Genesis 3, we approach work as if it's all about our own glory, so it becomes painful and frustrating because it wasn't meant to be that way, and we experience sin's result from Genesis 3. Everything seems futile and pointless, so it's painful and frustrating. We tend to approach work from one of these two angles out of Genesis 3. Every one of us tends towards one of these or the other. We tend to see our work either through the lens of the sin of Genesis 3, we approach it sinfully, or we see it through the lens of sin's result, through the lens of the curse. Here's what I mean by this. First, many people view their work through the sin of Genesis 3. They take a sinful approach. The sin of Adam and Eve was to make their work not about God's glory, but about their own. And this is what many people do. We make our work, our careers, our vocation all about ourselves and our own glory and we look for satisfaction and joy and purpose and meaning and identity in our work and we never find it because that's a moving goal. It's, it's like chasing the end of a rainbow. It's, it's, a, it's a moving goal. The next promotion is always where we will find satisfaction. The next raise is what will actually bring contentment and give me validation. Just a little more recognition will bring me true joy. And instead of worshiping God through our work, we use it as a means to worship ourselves. Promote our own glory. And work becomes our everything. Here's the problem of work after the fall. We've taken work's purpose worship of God and turned it into worship of self which of course means that work can no longer be a witness either no now it's a waste it's futile this is the result of sin and many people view their work through this lens this is the second thing first many people view it through the sin of genesis three. Second, many people view their work through the curse of genesis 3 through sin's result it's painful It's frustrating. It seems futile. Maybe you once tried to use work for your own glory and worship and make it all about yourselves, but that seems like a pointless rat race with no finish line. So now it's just futile, pointless, painful, and necessary evil. Or perhaps you work in a job that you hate. Or you parent children that are hard to like. Said every parent ever. While they tell lies on Instagram. Instagram. Perhaps you work in a job you hate, but you do it because you just got to pay the bills or you do some task that seems pointless. We aren't the first to feel those things. Solomon, I mean, if there was ever a a person whose work held meaning, he's the king of Israel, wisest man to ever live. He says this about his work in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 and 19. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Why? Because I see that that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he'll be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Vanity. Solomon says, I spend my whole life working, and for what? Like it amounts to nothing. It's futile. Death is going to take it all from me, and even if some of it gets left behind, who knows what the person coming next that inherits it is going to do with it. I mean, just waste it. Nothing I do, he says, makes an ultimate difference. It all feels pointless. And instead of our work being used as a witness, we waste it because we see work as nothing. Pointless. This is the problem of work after the fall. We view it through the sin of Genesis 3, take a sinful approach, use it to worship ourselves, work as our everything, or we view it through the curse of Genesis 3. It's futile, and we waste our work, because work is nothing. Are these really the only two options? Like, Is this the way it has to be? Does our, our working in the waiting really amount to nothing but self-worship or, or a waste? Pain and frustration? Or is there any... We lit a candle at the beginning of our service that stands for hope. We lit a candle that stands for hope that celebrates a season in which a great light breaks into darkness. And even in the darkness of Genesis chapter 3, that light of the hope of the gospel already breaks through. It does it in verse 15. Amidst the very words of the curse God in verse 15 Genesis 3:15 he makes a promise that one day that curse will be crushed. He says there will be a seed that will come from the woman, a son born of a woman. If only there was a season to celebrate such a coming, such an advent of such a son. God promises that this son, he's going to come and he's going to crush the curse of sin and death and the devil, and he is going to redeem all things and make them all new. And this is obviously Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, who died upon the cross, suffered, died, crucified, buried, took our curse of sin and death with him from the cross into the tomb, left it there when he walked out three days later. And all who have faith in Him, treasure Him, come and adore Him. Is that not the invitation of this season? Oh, come, let us adore Him. All who have faith in Him, who adore Him, His work on the cross counts for you. You don't have to work to prove your worth. Christ has done all the work for us. And His work is not a waste. He has redeemed us and freed us in every way, including vocationally. He redeems everything, including our work, including our vocations. We have been freed through Christ from the problem of the fall back to work's purpose in creation. We've been freed from worshiping our working selves to worshiping God through our work. We no longer have to prove our worth through our work. We can worship through it. And such work is not a waste. It's a witness. We've been freed from wasting our work to witnessing through it to the world. There may be a problem with work after the fall, but through Christ, our vocations can be redeemed to their purpose in creation. We can be a people who are working in the waiting. A a people pointing toward a Savior who came and is coming again in a second Advent. Shades, let's let's spend the rest of this Advent season exploring exactly what it looks like to be this people who worship and witness through their God-given vocation. Let's spend the rest of this Advent seeing what it looks like to be His people, a people working in the waiting. Amen.